You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 30. Excuse me, verse 13, all the way to verse 30. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall steal. Excuse me, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Church, this is God's word. You may be seated. In these last few chapters of Matthew's gospel... Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God and consistent with the Sermon on the Mount, 
He reveals to us the kingdom ethic and the implications of it. In other words, he is telling us as subjects of his kingdom, as redeemed image bearers of the king, he is telling us how we could best represent him by giving us his way of living. From forgiveness to marriage, from taking up our cross and denying ourselves daily to what it really means to be great, to the need for humility. Jesus is ever revealing to us the upside down nature of the kingdom. And that's why he came. He came to save us, which he has, and he is saving us. That through our union with Christ, we are in the process of being sanctified. His thoughts are not our thoughts, but he is transforming us so that one day they will be. And then we will see him as he is. Now here in this passage, Jesus is making that very clear. Jesus is saying that what we value, that our own self-righteousness is, as what Jeremiah says, filthy rags. They're useless. Our way of living, the way that we think we will, that will gain us entrance into the kingdom apart from Christ actually leads us to eternal torment. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's the truth. Now, truth without compassion is condemnation, but truth with compassion is love. Jesus is more loving than we will ever know. He is full of grace and truth, and he is our master teacher. We see this throughout Matthew's gospel where he engages with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and then with the disciples and those in need. And he speaks in a way that is both relatable and comforting, or as needed, in a way that is convicting and challenging. But he is always speaking the truth in love. And he does so in a way that no one else can. And that's his grace and his mercy towards us. He gets to the heart of the matter by speaking to our very hearts. Only Christ can do that. Now, through these interactions that we've been reading about in Matthew's gospel, through these stories, these healings, these confrontations, and through these encounters, Jesus is at once appealing to the authority of God's revelation, his word, by fulfilling it, and is also setting straight there and our deviations from his word. In answering those who would challenge Jesus' authority by their appealing to the lawgiver, Moses, Jesus corrects them. And whether by outright rebuke or questioning their questions, Jesus employs that same technique, answering the rich young ruler's question in part with a question. 
And he's doing this not to win an argument or to prove a point, but he's doing it to reveal the heart of his father and in turn to reveal the heart of the rich young man. And isn't that what the living word of God does to us? Every time that we intentionally seek God in his word, the spirit not only shows us who he is and what he's like, the spirit through the word is also showing us who we are and what we are like. The word of God is living and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the very intentions of our hearts. God's word exposes us, showing us who we really are. And Jesus, the living word incarnate, does that very thing to the rich young man. Now Matthew sets up this passage with Jesus first blessing the children. He does this to frame his encounter with the rich young man to provide a contrast by juxtaposing or putting side by side children, even infants, up against this man who by all measures, by what we value and by what we think of is good, he is a man of good standing, is he not? He's someone who we would not only think of as good, but someone to admire and even emulate. So now let's look at our text. Let's see that contrast on display. And we'll do that in four parts, which as we do, I hope, I hope that we will see that display of contrast ultimately serving the main point permeating throughout this passage, and that's this that our absolute dependence upon the very thing and the very one that gains us entry into the kingdom is grace. It's grace. God's grace. Again, our absolute dependence upon the very thing and the very one that gains us entry into the kingdom of heaven is grace. God's grace. So based on the passage, here are the four parts. Part number one is the introduction, verses 13 through 15, the introduction. And the second part here is the encounter, verses 16 through 20, the encounter. The third one is the illustration, verses 23 through 26. And then finally, the fourth part here is the regeneration, verses 27 through 30. So the introduction. Now, as I mentioned, Matthew uses his blessing of the children to frame this encounter with a rich young man and the ensuing illustration by way of contrast. But there's something else I want us to see here, something very significant about the kingdom that is front and center in these three verses, and that's childlikeness, childlikeness. Now, you remember in chapter 18, Matthew had recorded the disciples' question about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers that by calling a child, putting him in the midst of them and saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn, unless you turn, King James Version says, unless you are converted, repent 
unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As vital and as memorable as that teaching was, the disciples' reaction in this passage makes it seem as if that never happened. Look at verse 13 in our passage. Then children were brought to him, Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. They rebuked the people. But, verse 14, Jesus said, Let the children come to me. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, a cultural and a historical note here. Children in New Testament Israel and in the greater Greco-Roman world, they weren't generally held in high esteem, except for utilitarian purposes. And it's not that children weren't important or cared for. It's that life expectancy wasn't that high. And life was fragile, and in many cases, survival of the fittest was the order of the day. Children were not considered valuable just for who they were. They were needy dependents that until they grew to be helpful in the household or in the field, they were often seen along with women and servants as second class. And they definitely weren't seen as integral to the mission that the disciples were on as they were following their leader, the Messiah, to Jerusalem. So their rebuke of the people was somewhat understandable given the attitude of the, of the time, but their rebuke was met with the same. Jesus said, do not hinder them. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was saying to his disciples, yes, I am the Messiah. And yes, I am going to Jerusalem to fulfill my mission so that I can accept those that are childlike. I'm going to accept the trusting, the faithful, the ones looking for security in me. I'm going to free and accept the destitute and the desperate, the deficient, the needy. I'm going to accept the rejected and dependent, the poor and the poor in spirit into my kingdom and I'm going to bless them along the way. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. Now the word for children in the Greek, it's often used to describe very young children, even babies. And if we look about this uh, in Luke's gospel, he's writing about the same scene. And he says, they brought him even infants to Jesus. Now, as you know, we just saw one come in here this morning. We've had seven of eight babies born this year in our sweet church, and we got one on the way for this year. And I've had the incredible, and I still have, the incredible privilege to hold two of those eight in my arms, not as often as I'd like, but frequently. And as cute and as adorable as they are, because they're my grandchildren, <laughs> they're utterly helpless. They're utterly helpless. 
there's a beautiful fragility to them. It's not so beautiful in the middle of the night when they're crying and hungry. I get it. But every function that they have, everything that they need, they are entirely dependent upon their parents. Entirely. You parents know that. And as they get older, they develop this uninhibited trust in their parents. Uninhibited trust. Nothing gets in the way. And this is the childlike dependence on and the faith in Jesus that he is saying belongs to those who are accepted in the kingdom. This is the childlikeness that Christ commends and is talking about. And one more thing here that I don't want us to miss about this scene. The creator, Jesus Christ himself, the creator, the one who spoke worlds into existence, the one who himself is life and the giver of life. He's holding these these babies. He's holding these little children. And allow for some imagination here, which I don't think is hard to do. The maker is holding these little ones in, in his hands. And he's, he's looking at their little fingers, their noses. He's looking at their feet. And he's looking at their eyes. And he is marveling at his creation. And as he said on the first days of creation, he is saying to these babies, this is good. This is good. He's taking joy in the moment. He is rejoicing in these new little lives. Is he not? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. So now as beautiful as that scene is, in contrast to Jesus blessing the children, Matthew, he now calls our attention to what is about to happen in verse 16 by saying, and behold, the encounter, the second part of this passage. Look at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. On the surface, it seems to be a good question, does it not? Something that the man should be commended for. What must I do to gain eternal life? But here's what we need to see. We do not define what is good, and therefore we do not get to set the terms on how we could enter into eternal life. That's what the rich young man is doing when he addresses Jesus as teacher. Teacher, teach me what I can do to gain eternal life. Immediately, Jesus reminds him of what, or rather, who is good. 
And even in his answer, Jesus does not lower the bar of true righteousness. Here we see the rich young ruler operating on a very limited level. He continues to see things only in his own orbit. Everything is in relation to him. Even as he says that he has honored the commandments that relate to other people, it's still in relation to him. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And so he said to him, to Jesus, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? I believe he was honest in saying what, that he was lacking. There is a sense of dissatisfaction, an unrelenting one in his case, when done his way. Likewise, there is ultimately a lack of fulfillment when we do things not according to God's way. And this is where Jesus gets to the heart of the matter by speaking to this young man's heart. Jesus said to him, look in verse 21, if you would be perfect, he's saying, if you would be whole, if you would be restored, if you would be at peace, shalom with your creator. Reflect your heavenly father. As a loyal and faithful subject of the king, love those whom the king loves. That's what he's saying here in verse 21. He says, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, Follow me. Now, Jesus revealed to the young man that he did not, in fact, remain true to the commandments, as we see, because his heart was keeping record of what he did on an outward basis. Perhaps consistent with what he was able to do to become rich, he worked hard. Yes, he did. He worked hard. He kept a careful record of all his transactions, and he gave to church. He volunteered to help the poor every Tuesday and Thursday. He attended prayer every Friday. He even did his daily devotions every day. This man was disciplined. He was good. But all the while, he accumulated a sense of security in himself that he relied on. All the while, he didn't do it out of a genuine love for others because it was revealed that he didn't love the Lord, his God. Our call to worship this morning, it calls out this attitude in this young man and also in ourselves. Micah chapter six, verse six. Micah six, verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall I give my body to be burned? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This rich young man, he approached his duty as a way to gain favor with God. He thought that his sacrifices were worth giving him a reason to say to God himself, I've been good enough to enter into the kingdom. I've done works in your name. But he was really giving and gaining a name for himself. And if we're honest, this is something we wrestle with as well. We're not called to have perfect motives. I don't think we'll ever have a perfect and pure motive all the time, all our lives. But we are called to faithful obedience. We're called in faithful obedience to love God because he first loved us. Hence the faithful reminders we have through the Holy Spirit that he gives through his word, through our mutual encouragement with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and through the faithful gathering of his people. And here's what Jesus is saying in verse 21. The sacrifices that we're called to, the obedience that we give, It's not something to earn salvation. It's not something to earn salvation. But as people who are saved, as people who are already in the grace of God, these sacrifices are a means. They are a means by which God could move his grace into us and then through us out to each other. The sacrifices that we make are not to earn salvation But as born-again believers, ones who belong to Jesus Christ, they are a means by which God can move his grace into us and through us out to one another. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Bible scholar Michael Green, he says this, Sadly, this man missed, and here's the Greek word, Zoe Ionios. Zoe Ionios. That's a God kind of life. That's a life that is true and abundant life. The meaning of this phrase, eternal life, is not quantity, but quality of life. It's not so much that life goes on and on, which it will, but it means a new quality of life. And he says this, listen, life released from materialism, and selfishness to share the loving and the self-giving life of God. That's what we get to do. And Jesus was after this man's heart. Make no mistake, Mark's gospel says that he loved him. Jesus wanted him to see not just his imperfections, and the same thing he says to us, not just look at our imperfections, but he wants to give them true freedom. He wants to give him true freedom, a new life free from his own shackles of self-righteousness and to have him engage and participate in life-giving sacrifices of the kingdom. 
This is the upside down that we're talking about. This is the upside down of Christ's and his kingdom. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The rich young man went away, not just sad, but extremely disappointed. He was full of sorrow. He turned down the offer of salvation from the Savior himself. And Jesus looks around, saddened himself. But this young man neglected so great a salvation. And he gives us an illustration which is the third part of this passage. And this illustration was a way for us to see the true heart of the matter. Now, as we have learned, illustrations that have been given throughout the Gospels and given by Christ, they're given as a way to understand a certain principle, but they give way to the reality. The reality is much more real and true and intense than the illustration. So verse 23, he says, And Jesus said to his disciple, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will, the rich, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Commentator Craig Keener, he writes about this very same principle and passage. Quote, Wealth and status make perfect surrender to God's will more difficult. Why? Because we think we have more to lose. Wealth and status make perfect surrender to God's will more difficult because we think we will have more to lose. Many examples of faith in the Bible are acts of desperation. Few are acts of self-satisfied individuals, end quote. You have heard it said, we don't know how much we have until Jesus is all we have. There is a difference between teacher, tell me what I need to do to be saved versus Lord, have mercy on me. And when the disciples heard this, verse 25, they were greatly astonished saying, well, who then can be saved? And what Jesus is continuing to reveal is that because God is good and doesn't change, his standard for entry into the kingdom, his criteria for who could be saved does not change. In his perfect righteousness, in his holiness, he can only accept those who have kept his perfect law. He will only accept those who keep his commandments perfectly without fail. To put it simply, with man, this is impossible. With man, this is impossible. And here's the good news. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. With God, that camel did go through the eye of the needle, as it were. Because salvation is no less than a miracle. 
and it required no less than God himself to accomplish it. In speaking of the standard of perfection, God's commandments, those who have not kept the law, you and me, are guilty. We, who because we have hated others in our hearts, have committed murder. We, who have looked upon a woman or a man with lust, have committed adultery. We who have not been faithful with time, money, and resources that have been given to us have stolen. We who have never been perfectly truthful all the time have borne false witness. We who have disrespected our parents in our hearts, in our words, and in our actions have not honored them. We who have trusted in good things and have desired security and safety in our resources, in our status, and recognition of our careers, in our reputation, fulfillment in our relationships. For all of those that we have not trusted in God first, we are guilty of idolatry. And for us who live in prosperity, for us who live in prosperity. We give our time and our money only when it's convenient. We are guilty. For us who rely on what we have built up over the years or are planning to do so. For those of us planning to do so as our means of security, whether it's in the form of a bank account or our moral account, these things become our functional savior and we are guilty. And it's very deceptive because we don't often see it. Jesus spoke to his church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And so he speaks to his church in Orange County today. In, re in relation to God's perfection and his holiness, he says this in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is who we are, God's word exposing us, and this is what we are like. Yet, yet by his grace, he doesn't leave us there. Look at the following verse. Verse 8, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. How is this done? Being wretched and poor how can this be accomplished? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Church, our absolute dependence upon the very thing and the very one that gains us entry into the kingdom of heaven is grace. Again, God's grace. And this is what that looks like. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The perfect lawgiver, not Moses but one greater than Moses, Jesus, the perfect lawgiver, became the perfect law keeper. God provided for our required sacrifice that was seen in Micah for my transgression by giving his only begotten son his body for the sin of my soul. The payment for breaking the law that we are guilty of was made whole. It was satisfied on the cross. That is the standard of perfection that God required, and that is the standard of perfection that Emmanuel, God with us, has accomplished. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that's what he offered up to the rich young ruler. And that's what he offers up to us today. Back in our text in Matthew 19, up in verse 21, because of God's grace and provision in Jesus, whatever we give up here and now, we will have treasure in heaven. Did you see that? Whatever we give up here and now, we will have treasure in heaven. And that's the response Jesus gives to Peter down in verse 28. Then Peter said in verse 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, his disciples, truly I say to you that in the new world, in the regeneration, the new heavens and the new earth, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne and you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All of what we just read is grace. Grace means this, church. Grace means that we come with nothing to receive everything. That's grace. We come with nothing to receive everything. Everything, everyone who has left everything for my name's sake will inherit a hundredfold and eternal life. And church, though we suffer here and now, grace still means that we come with nothing to receive everything. By his grace, as we all give up everything to follow Jesus, although we sacrifice, and that which we give up may hurt and it will involve present loss, whether it's material possessions, lands, houses, whatever, relationships, mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, our reputation, whatever, it will be worth it because he is worthy. He is worthy. Listen to the Apostle Paul in his letter again to the church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 through 8. 
through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We come with nothing to receive everything. Church, this is grace. This is God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. And with God, this is possible and this has been accomplished at the cross for our sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And like the hymn says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would take his only son and make a wretch his treasure. Lord, we pray that we don't walk away like the rich young man, but like a child, we open our arms and our hearts to you to trust you fully with everything. That, Lord, whatever we may give up, Lord, you promise to give us your son who is everything for us. Lord, you have demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, Lord, we hold on to the promise that you who did not spare your own son, but through him, Lord, you will give us all that we need. Increase our faith, Lord, in you. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.